oh my God, we're live. Bitcoin is under 50,000. What's going on? Anyways, welcome to Disrupt TV. You're now in the green room and uh, we'll be doing some quick introductions, everybody in reverse order. So we're going to start with Kathy, go to John, then go to David. Uh, and then of course, uh, we'll introduce Brett. So go ahead, Kathy, where are you calling in from? What are we going to talk about today? I am here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is absolutely uh, gorgeous. Um, I am um, a principal architect of ethical AI practice. And so I hope to be able to talk a whole lot about uh, ethical AI practice and, and um, how we move it forward. You know, one of the most important areas, uh, especially looking at emerging technologies and the impact on everybody here. So, John, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, I'm John. Of course, Ray. How are you doing? Um, I'm in Murphy's, California. I usually live in San Francisco, but I uh, came up to uh, Murphy's and it's actually beautiful here today, too. It was quite wow, rainy and foggy yesterday. Um, and I'm here. I'm, I'm the senior vice president of market strategy at Salesforce. And I'm also here to talk about AI ethics. Uh, Ooh, topic of cool. uh, consideration to all of Salesforce and all of technology in the world, actually. Very cool. Dr. David Bray, where are you calling him from? What are we talking about today? Great to see you, Ray and Vala. Um, I have bounced from D.C. to Philadelphia to uh, now I'm in San Francisco for the next 24 hours before heading back to D.C. Um, and uh, be joining uh, John and Kathy to talk about how we can do data and AI with people as opposed to two people. Oh my God, we'll have to join you in San Francisco. All right, very cool. And Brett, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, uh, well, I, I spend my time between Bangkok and New York. I'm in New York right now, and we're going to be talking about my new book, The Rise of Techno Socialism. Thanks for having me on. Woohoo. All right. Well, with that, I think we're ready to go. Turn it back to you, Elle. All right. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television and business and technology news contributor to Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. And of course, all my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, not keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him at, on business TV uh, outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as you know, it's never been about us. It's always been about our amazing guests. And today we have a wonderful guest. Who do we have to kick it off today for episode 260? Ray, we have an, an awesome guest. Uh, Brett King is world-renowned entrepreneur, futurist speaker, international best-selling author, and, and a media personality, much like yourself. Uh, China's president, uh, Xi Jinping, called his book, augmented life in smart lane on the topic of artificial intelligence in his 2018 national address, the same book that was listed as a top 10 nonfiction book in North America. In 2019, his book Bank 4.0 was awarded the top book by foreign authors in Russia for that year. 
La in 2020, last year, uh, Brett was uh, included into the FinTech Hall of Fame by CB Insights. His books have been released in over a dozen languages. Banking Exchange Magazine dubbed Brett the king of disruptors. I love that. The king of disruptors on Disrupt TV. <laughs> While the Australian newspaper in Australia called him the godfather of fintech. Godfather of fintech. Brett has spoken in more than 50 countries. He's spoken at TED, Wired, Singularity University, The Economist, and many more. He's appeared and commented in all major news and media outlets. And he's, Ray, listen to this. This might beat your number. He has, he has spoken to virtual audiences in, in, in live uh, to over 42 million people. Wow, million people. that is amazing. Uh, Brett also advised President Obama's administration on fintech strategy and today advises regulators, lawmakers, boardrooms around the world on digital transformation and future readiness. Brett founded uh, the Breaking Banks and the Futures podcast. It's distributed in 180 countries, and it's approaching about 10 million listeners. Um, the rise of techno-socialism, how inequality AI climate will uh, will uh, will usher uh, use... in a new world. Usher <laughs> a new world. Sorry, uh, apology. That's uh, what we're going to talk about during the next 20 minutes. This is Brett's seventh book uh, and his Great. most recent book. You can follow. He's a great follow on Twitter at at Brett King. B R E T T. K-I-N-G. Welcome, Brett, to Disrupting. Thanks, Vala. Yeah. Um, I had to you cut the your kind... bio in about a quarter because we only have 20 minutes. So my apologies. <laughs> no, no, no. I, like, um, you know, look, it, it, I've, I've lived all around the world. I, I'm a global citizen. Um, you know, I, I've, I've loved the experience of that. And that's brought me great uh, success in sort of from a perspective talking about how disruption sort of changes the world in, at different rates in different cultures. It's uh, what an interesting time to be alive, you know. You know, Brett, that's amazing. And that global perspective is so important. But not only that, you add that notion of what we're doing around inequality, AI, right. technology, where this where, where the world is headed. And let's start with this, the title, right? Why techno-socialism? What is techno-socialism? And why do you call it that? Because it's a yeah. very provocative word it to is. start with. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's a marketing strategy in some respects. But, um, you know, like we start off the book saying... Uh, you know, technology will enable us to reduce the cost of government and the size of government in tremendous ways. For example, we look at the book, uh, we look at the problem of healthcare in the United States. You know, US healthcare system is twice the cost of the OECD average. Outcomes are often, uh, you know, worse. Uh, yeah, you know, um, but we show in the book how to reduce the cost of the total cost of the US healthcare system by 70% using technology. So when we can deliver universal universal healthcare at a, at a small fraction of the price of what we spend on healthcare today, do you still call it socialism or is that capitalism at work? You know, that's really the sort of angle that we take in the book is increasingly we're going to have to use technology for the good of all, particularly because inequality is such a significant problem in the United States today. During the pandemic, um, the world's billionaires surpassed $10 trillion in wealth for the first time. Um, the top 0.1% of Americans own more than the bottom 90% of Americans. And when artificial intelligence starts to impact employment, this is only going to get much, much worse, this gap between the rich and the poor. We already see the contentious uh, issues that creates in terms of social coherence. So we're really, we're looking for a solution to that problem first and foremost. 
Your book is full of stunning stats. I mean, you've given me probably a year or two of worth of tweets. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. Said, that's no, that's you, part of the You talk about healthcare, for example. Um, you said two-thirds of all bankruptcies are medical-related. You talk about yep. individual costs have gone 720% since 1970 and from 2% of GDP to 10% of GDP from 1980 to 2020, just healthcare-related stats. With respect to artificial intelligence, you write, uh, with the emergence of AI, we're on the verge of perhaps solving the biggest mysteries of the universe, but AI will also allow us to automate society to provide untold abundance and prosperity, shattering the concept of work itself. So this is straight from your book. Now, in your book, uh, posits four major potential futures for humanity. Right. Can you explain the way you map these out? Yeah, well, this was really the the aha moment we had in terms of why sort of techno-collectivism or techno-humanism, techno-socialism was really the optimal form of humanity moving forward. Obviously, inequality is a significant problem in the US, but it is increasingly around the world. Um, and we also have the problem of, you know, the things like climate change coming at us, you know, we tend to wait until the disaster hits us before we react and plan. So you have this chaotic versus plan potential for, for humanity. So we put those two on an axis, inclusiveness versus exclusionary. So economies like the United States tend to be very individualistic and emphasize the individual, whereas European economies tend to be more collective in their view. And then you have chaotic futures versus, you know, utopian planned ordered futures. So we mapped out four quadrants based on, on those axes. And you have one quadrant, in, which is the inclusive chaotic, which is the uh, Ladistan scenario, where we reject technology because of the employment effect that artificial mm -hmm. intelligence is going to have. You see the whole anti-science, anti-tech movement, um, you know, sort of building right now. So we play that out. What would the world look like if that became, um, you know, the way we sort of uh, ordered society. Then we have Faldistan, which is the exclusionary chaotic. So Faldistan is where we just waited too long. You know, we waited too long on the climate issue and Maldives, Bangladesh, uh, Tuvalu, you know, um, American Samoa gets inundated and we have a billion eco-refugees. You know, what do we do in that scenario? Then we looked at sort of playing out where we are today in the United States, exclusionary ordered economies where you have essentially the wealth the elite continue to keep this uh, um, layered, uh, segmented society, and we have neo-feudalism. Corporations define policy; they restrict, uh, you know, moving away from fossil fuel, um, you know, industries, for example, till the last minute. Um, and then, of course, the the what we call the exclusionary or collective uh, technology future, techno-socialism, where technology is used for good, and we try and solve these problems of inequity, um, you know, and and also bigger problems like healthcare access, education access, and so forth. So they're the four outcomes. And probably in reality, we're going to see all four of those play out over the next 30 years. But we make an argument in the book for why we think techno-socialism represents the optimal path for humanity. No, this is really fascinating. And I think behind that is some of the underlying assumptions on where economies are, where economic uncertainty is. Uh, you do talk about that. Um, I want to divert a little bit to talking about um, the role governments have played in fueling that 
uh, economic inequality. In fact, the printing of all these amount right. of tremendous amount of money, there's quadrillions of assets sitting on the sidelines that's fueling these asset bubbles and the arbitrage that's going on. And the U.S. is one of the poster child for that, right? The amounts, yeah. trillions of dollars of debt that we've printed over time, those assets are actually fueling inequality because those who can play into the arbitrage space are doing a great job. Um, those who can't play are, are suffering in between. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's our debt spending that's part of this. Um, is the U.S. Uh, facing economic uncertainty or are we able to lever our dollar and continue to wield the you know, notion of a fiat currency on everybody else and have them pay for our sins? Well, first of all, the whole world is facing economic uncertainty. We show in the book that protests, you know, dissatisfaction with government and with systems have increased a thousand percent in participation over the last 20 years. So that's a good uh, indicator. You know, the populist movement, Bernie Sanders, AOC, they're both evidence of people um, saying the system's not working, we need to do better. Where this sort of starts is, you know, we, we talk about um, Will and Ariel Durant's le lessons from history uh -huh. in, in yeah. In the book, and the the pyramid versus diamond shaped economies. Yep. Um, you know, so the U.S. Uh, sec post Second World War economy was the most successful economy the world has ever seen, but in the 1980s in the Western world, both in the U.K. with Thatcher, um, with Reagan in the United States, we started to attack trade unions and collective bargaining. So that flattened out wage growth, real wage growth for Americans and and Britons, and um, and then uh, we had the deregulation of the financial services sector with Clinton. In in the later later part of the 80s as well. So you combine these and what essentially happened is consumption that was driving economic growth, that sort of fell off as wage growth stalled. But wealth creation didn't stall. The GDP growth continued, just that wealth distribution started to move from growth and support of the middle class to now moving to, um, you know, the richest uh, 1%. And so we we saw legislated wealth distribution, um, you know, from these policies. And today, this is where we've got where, um, you know, you have, if you're working on a minimum wage 40 hours a week, there's not a, a, a single um, one bedroom home that you can find in the 50 states of America to, to rent. Rent, let alone with healthcare costs and food costs and things like that uh, on top of it. So that's where we've played this out. So that redistribution of wealth really occurred there. So this, this is unsustainable. With the level of inequality that we see today, when we've seen this in history, it's resulted in revolution. And so we either have to fix this wealth distribution problem or we, you know, we have problems with social cohesion moving forward. Yeah, and in, in, in your, I just want to repeat what you said. You said... In uh, global protests, in terms of frequency, have increased by two hundred percent. Correct. In, in terms of participation, it's, it's a thousand percent. Correct. <laughs> Since nineteen ninety, so there's clearly unrest, and, and folks uh, want to be heard. Um, yeah. Now, now, your book does start with saying the twenty first century is going to be the most disruptive, uh, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. So you set the stage. The four, the four core drivers of global economic uncertainty, you have inequality, pandemics, plural, yep. uh, climate change, and tech, a technology reference, AI. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to put AI, a, a specific technology, as a core driver of uncertainty for in, in, in the 21st century? 
Well, AI has got so many possibilities of the problems it can solve, but we sure. know there's also issues, you know, there's already issues in respect to bias and things like that. But the big problem is that, you know, it's really going to change employment. All of these process-oriented jobs we have in the economy today, at least 50% of them over the next 20 years, up to 90%, you know, in the latter half of this century are going to be displaced by artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So if we don't create new jobs around the technology arena, then you're going to have high levels of unemployment. Ironically, in the United States, we have nowhere near enough STEM graduates to support the jobs that are already in the economy for technology. That's why we need the H-1B visa and things like that. But if you play that out, by the mid-2030s, you have high unemployment, you have labor shortages from technology, and ultimately what's happening is AI is designed to eliminate human labor force from production. That, that's the intent, uh, you know. So what we end up with coming out the other side of this is we will still work, but we won't work nine to five to put food on the table. The economy will be able to provide those basic needs for us because of the immense wealth that artificial intelligence will create. But that then things you know what is our passion what what do we what do we think is important enough to spend our day doing those activities so things like climate mitigation you know infrastructure resilience they're sort of jobs that might come out of the climate area for example but people will be able to pursue their passions rather than having to work to put food on the table that's really ultimately where ai takes us but it's yeah. disruptive in the middle it's chaotic in the middle sure. right in the transition yeah, no, this is definitely going to be there. And, and and I think one of the things that you talk about, and, and I always wonder is like, how do we get from here to the Star Trek economy, right? And and you talk about optimal humanity. And, and I think optimal humanity is a great way to phrase this. What does that mean? How do we get to optimal humanity? And where do we, uh, you know, find, you know, packs, you know, with the uh, AI and the bots and all the other things that are working around us? Well, I think this comes back to sort of the core question, Bala, that you asked at the start in terms of the economy and its role in this is that, um, you know, if you look at humanity in the past, when we've made the biggest leaps and bounds technologically and scientifically, it's been when we work collectively together. You know, think about the Apollo moonshot, the Apollo program. Think about the Human Genome Project, even the response to COVID in terms of vaccine production and so forth. When we come together as humans, there's nothing we can't do. But capitalism in its current form creates competition against each other at an individual um, state, you know, in terms of jobs, at a, at a national level, at a global level. Um, and while that's great for creating incentives for capitalism, it's an inefficient way to work for species-wide cooperation. For something like climate change, it's not possible to have a national climate change policy that has global impact. You need to work collectively. Um, and if you think about food scarcity and, you know, 570 cities being inundated by sea rise in 2050, these are problems which are simply too large to say, we'll leave you to it, that's your problem. We are going to have to work collectively. So this is where we think the maturity of the human species needs to go, is that if we continue to be divided, red versus blue, you know, um, you know and, and these arbitrary, uh, um, you know, divisions that we have, we are really biting off our nose to spite our face. We are a human family. We're a human species on this planet together. And the more that we work together, the more powerful we are. These, these uh, arbitrary, um, you know, divisions that we create are are inefficient, you know, frankly, and, and ultimately, you know, 
don't don't lead to positive outcomes. Sure, sure. So my final question, Brett, just shifting from the topic of op, you know optimal humanity to perhaps optimal organizational design. Um, in your book, you talked about government is massively inefficient today, but we have the opportunity to cut government spending by more than half. You say, you claim more yep. than half through the use of uh, artificial intelligence, smart infrastructure, and and and. Uh, and, and consensus-based policy mechanism. So when I read consensus-based policy mechanism, and I've been following non-fungible token movement this year, a billion sold in the first quarter, over 11 billion sold in Q3, and it may be 16 to 20 billion this current quarter. So an order of magnitude increase in NFTs and tracking Web3 and this uh, you know creator-owned uh, web, which is orchestrated through tokens. Um, when you talk about consensus-based policymaking and reducing the cost of government and efficiencies, are you talking about government as a distributed autonomous organization? As a DAO? exactly, is, yeah. is it? Is it okay? Well, well right. you know, ultimately, ultimately, <laughs> yeah. yes. But we're talking about better, more efficient resource allocation. But okay. on the consensus mechanism, we use the example of virtual Taiwan. And, you know, this has been something that's been talked about for hundreds of years. You know, Socrates and Plato talked about the stateship concept as, as a mm -hmm. way of doing this. You know, if you look at um, the way we vote today, it, it, you know, even representative government is imperfect because you have to depend on your representative to, you know, follow the consensus of the constituents in voting in policy. And often they're influenced by lobby groups and who funds them and things like that. So that's an imperfect solution, as we see. Um, you know, the example of that is fossil fuels when we have 8 to 10 million people die every year and we're still heavily incentive to put fossil fuels in because of profits, right? So consensus mechanisms like virtual Taiwan bring together people in the domain that have real expertise or have a stake, you know, a dog in the fight in terms of uh, the implementation of that policy and they come together to create the consensus and that that's implemented through technology. And essentially the representative element is just keeping the DAO running. Right. It's keeping the resources, you know, uh, and the inputs into that system to keep it allocated. The reality is, it, you know, we could radically um, improve taxation and revenue by making it real time and automated. We could radically improve policing by automating that. You know, Shenzhen, we give that as an example, you know, one of the smartest cities in the world where they've completely eliminated, um, you know, vehicle patrols for uh, fines like speeding and seatbelt using um you know using image recognition um and it's it's created more revenue for the police force and reduced the number of impact of police violence and things like that so there are so many areas where automation is going to just revolutionize uh, government in its efficiency and that's what it's about you know if we can reduce the cost of government that's why techno socialism is really economically right wing and it's socialistically left-wing because it sort of brings those two solutions together. It's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this. We're with Brett King, international best-selling author <laughs> and renowned futurist and media personality, live from New York. Uh, he's off to Thailand soon, but thank you so much for being here. You can follow him on Twitter at Brett King and check out his new book, Techno Socialism. You can get it anywhere. Launched November 21st, I believe. So it was, congratulations. Yeah. Well, listen, congratulations. Uh, great to see you guys again, Ray. Thanks, you know, I hope we meet up, uh, you know, on stage again next year sometime as things start to come back. But thank you both. Thank you, Brett. Hey, thank you. Thanks we'll so see you much. around. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Yeah. Oh my God. Dows I read the book. Be, I read the slides. Big topics. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be I something mean... that everyone should put on their radar. Okay.
Wait, we I, we have three big brains uh, as our next. Yeah, guest. let's put them up there so, instead. Here we go. Do, do me do me a favor. Give me a few minutes just to introduce all three before we get into the conversation. And all right, I apologize to all of you. I had to cut your bios in a third because we only have forty minutes for three of you. So so let's start with Dr. David Bray, who's principal at Lead Do Adapt Ventures. He served in a variety of leadership roles in a turbulent environment, including. Bioterrorism Preparedness and Response, Executive Director for Bipartisan National Commission on R&D, worked with U.S. Navy and Marines on improved organizational adaptability, and with U.S. Special Operations Command J-5 uh, Directorate on the challenges of countering disinformation online. Dr. Bray has received both Joint Civilian Service uh, Accommodation Award and the National Intelligence Exceptional Achievement Medal. Dr. David Bray accepted a leadership role in December 2019 to direct successful bipartisan commission on the geopolitical impacts of new technologies and data, a topic we had just thought, uh, we just talked about. And Business Insider named Dr. Bray as one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world. <laughs> and he was named Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum. For 12, uh, for 12 different startups, he has served as President Chief Strategy Officer and Strategic Advisor role. Uh, you can follow his company's work on Twitter at Atlantic Council. Welcome back, Dr. Bray, to Disrupt TV. Again, Glad to be here for, with you. Sorry for cutting your bio. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no need to apologize. That was humbling uh, enough as it is. Thanks. Uh, my, our next guest, you know, a role model, a mentor, a person I go to to learn more about AI, Kathy Baxter, is Principal Architect of Ethical AI Practice at Salesforce. As Principal Architect of Ethical AI Practice at Salesforce, Kathy develops research-informed based practice to educate Salesforce employees like myself our customers and the industry on development of responsible AI. Kathy collaborates and partners with external AI and ethics experts to continuously evolve Salesforce's policies, practices, and products. Prior to Salesforce, Kathy worked at Google, eBay, and Oracle in the user experience research world. Uh, her, the second edition of her book, Understanding Your Users, was published uh, recently and continues to be an incredibly well-read book. You can read about her current research at einstein.ai slash ethics, einstein.ai slash ethics. You can also follow Kathy on Twitter at Baxter KB, B-A-X-T-E-R-K-B. Welcome, Kathy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so very much. Okay, and my one of my favorite people on earth. John Tashek is senior Twitter vice president. Bio. Yeah, I think I cut yours in half too. John, uh, John Tashek is senior vice president of market strategy at Salesforce. John's responsible for corporate product strategy, corporate intelligence, and market influence. John joined Salesforce in 03, only four years after the birth of the company, bringing over 20 years of technology evaluation experience. Prior, previously, John ran testing labs for eWeek, e -week, formerly PC Week magazine, for 11 years and was member of its editorial board. John's an award-winning columnist whose coverage of enterprise application has been cited in numerous research and academic reports. He's also author of several books on computing technology. John is the principal reason I joined Salesforce, and it's my honor to be part of John's team. You can follow John on Twitter at jtashek, J-T-A-S-C-H-E-K. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala. It's great to be here. Good to see you, Ray. And, and, I know. Welcome, and welcome. Two of my other favorite people, Kathy and David. <laughs> this is 
Five friends right here. This is great. <laughs> no, and we're talking about an amazing topic, right? And we just got set, you know, we basically set the stage um, coming in with Brett's book, really talking about where AI is going, where it could go wrong, where it could go right. Um, but that's really why we're here today. Why is AI ethics important? And, uh, you know, feel free to jump in. And we're going to say, you know, give some examples of how this really changes the way we look at AI, what does when we actually design for AI, just like the way we used to design for usability. Now we're designed for AI ethics. These things are actually coming in. I think Kathy, we worked together when Killian Evers was around. A whole bunch of folks were doing uh, UX and UI as well. Uh, lots of interesting things that are popping up. So I'll start with you, Kathy. What's going on with AI, AI ethics, and, and where this goes in product design? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Brett touched on some of these points earlier about the concerns of risks of bias and, and harm if we are uh, training our uh, systems on data that is not representative of everyone that it impacts, then uh, it could get it could be wrong. Um, how we decide to apply AI systems and to whom can also add bias. So um, the AI system can be incredibly accurate, but how it's applied can be very unfair or punitive. And so we all we have to think about those different ways that uh, bias and harm can enter the system and how do we mitigate it? What is our responsibility? And it's incredibly important to get it right because just the sheer scale of impact that AI has. And just to give one quick like historical uh, context setting, it took 139 years to reach 1.4 billion drivers globally. So we think about cars as being a huge technological impact and, and benefit in many ways to society, but also detriments if we think about climate change. In terms of social media, it will have taken only 21 years to reach 4.5 billion social media users globally by 2025. And AI is the reason, really, the driver behind this massive explosion of the use of social media in um, what content it, it serves up to you, what you see, uh, and um, what, the, what is viral, what is personalized and, and keeps you coming back for more and resharing. And so when we think about the, the harms, we also have to think about the scale and speed and, and how can we ensure that what we are creating is safe. Absolutely. You know, it was stunning. Uh, a couple of years ago, Salesforce revealed that in a 24-hour window, our Einstein AI engine predicts about 10 billion, makes 10 billion predictions in, 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 in a day. Yesterday, we had an event in New York City, and I saw on, I think it was Brett Taylor's slide, 124 billion predictions, uh, and, and, and almost a trillion prediction during Cyber Week Monday. Those numbers, we, I mean, we saw an order of magnitude increase in just a couple of years. Dr. Bray, in Kathy's research, uh, I also saw that, you know, research showed that AI spending is expected to hit 110 billion in 2024. Uh, executive focused on AI, 80% are struggling to establish a process to ensure responsible use of AI, which is why Brett thinks it's going to be a, one of the four core drive, one of the four core drivers of uncertainty. 93% of consumers say companies have a responsibility to look beyond profit to impact society. And Kathy's research finally said 79% of the workforce would consider leaving an employer who demonstrates poor ethics. Dr. Brett, you consult with senior executives, government, public, private startups. How much is ethical, responsible use of software top of mind 
And has it reached like a boardroom level discussion today versus maybe a few years ago? Right. Um, so that's obviously a, a very key question. And I guess maybe what I would say is speaking from uh, what we just produced at the Atlantic Council, which was uh, in the midst of the pandemic and everything, uh, starting in March of 2020 and releasing in May of 2021, we actually assembled both uh, Republicans and Democrats, as well as representatives from academia and industry, some VIPs, to pull together consensus recommendations for not just data and AI, but thinking about uh, resilient supply chains, thinking about global health, thinking about commercial space technologies, and actually release bipartisan recommendations with industry endorsement for nations, the United States, but also allied nations and, and nations that share our similar ideals, what we should do in this space. And, and I really wish, because I was listening to Brett, uh, it was interesting how he was going to government both as the problem and the fix, when I would actually step back and say, we've seen this before. Anytime there is a new disruptive technology, there is historically massive inequity between those who know it and those who have to take the time to do it. Happened with the steam engine, happened with electricity. Um, Kathy mentioned you know, what happened with uh, um, automation and cars. We've seen this before, but the solution is actually not government. Usually it's the solution in which we, we find secondary industries that help up tool and upskill people to respond to it. It's thinking about the businesses, thinking about corporate responsibility. And so I would submit actually, if you're looking for government to be the solution, and this is someone who has served in government, you're probably looking in the wrong place. Uh, it's, not, it's not designed to move at the speed that we want it to. In fact, we don't want it to. And when we hear like people that want to have consensus-driven government, if you go back at least what the founders wanted, the last thing they wanted was mob rule. They wanted the cooler heads to prevail. And so when we talk about everyone having a voice, I'm all for that. But what you want to do is also have circuit breakers. Sometimes when the mob is coming with pitchforks, they may come with the wrong pitchforks. And I think that's the thing that we need to think about when it comes to data and AI is how does this both address the fact that it is a revolution that's happening simultaneous to several others. We've got quantum computing. We've got what's going on with commercial space technologies. How do we make sure that we address the responsibility that it doesn't just benefit a few, but it actually benefits everybody. And that's thinking about education, that's thinking about inclusiveness, um, making sure that when the machine is actually being fed data from us, that it is actually um, not just feeding in the, the, the lesser evils of our society, because our society still has things that need to be fixed. As much as we talk about data and AI ethics, we need to actually recognize that we still have you know, racial, gender problems that need to be addressed in society. And if you're training the machine on that, you're gonna have that same ref reflection. And so um, I think it's gonna be an interesting world in which we move forward but I think the solution is actually gonna be more when industry steps forward and thinks about corporate responsibility. And I would actually step back and say, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 SDGs, sure. all of those are gonna require corporations to think about how they use data in a way that actually addresses the problems of either feeding the world, potable water and things like that. And that's where really at the end of the day, um, I do think there's a role for the board and CEOs, but not just individually, but actually starting to build roundtables where it's CIO roundtables, CEO roundtables, board roundtables that say, how can we make sure that data is representative of a future that we want, um, that our customers want, that, that members of the public want and communities want, and how do we make sure that they are actually having some sort of equity in it, as opposed to this just being sort of a very lopsided um, distribution of the benefits? I want to follow up with the question because I want to shift that conversation and ask John a question from government to private sector. It turns out that my company believes business is the greatest platform for change. And when we think about business and Salesforce specifically, several years ago, we hired an ethical and humane use chief officer at our company to guide how we can align our culture to how we design and deliver products and solutions to 
to the market. So, John, uh, and I believe, and, I, I'm, and, I, and I'm saying this as an employee, but I believe we're the first company to hire such an important senior role to guide our, 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 our corporation. Why is this so important to Salesforce? Why is ethical human use of software something that we were thinking about and executed against several years ago in terms of making sure that business can be the greatest platform for change? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And the reason that we do it is because we want to be a company that lasts for a long time. And, uh, you know, more than 10 years, more than 20 years, and, you know, look out to the, uh, to be um, a company that, you know, is, goes to the next generation. And we are seeing that companies that don't have ethics may, not always, but may um, disappear before their, their time. Um, and uh, we're predicting that if a company is, has ethics, that it will be better for the people and the people will appreciate the company more. And it's part of the community rather than something that's just giving some technology to, to a consumer uh, as a, like a product fix. So we want to be more, we want to be bigger than a technology company. And uh, that's our, our way of doing it. Um, there were very specific reasons that we hired Paula, uh, but I think the general, the general idea and is from Mark, in his, even his book prior, like 10, 15 years ago, he had something called compassionate capitalism. Mm. You know, it, it's an evolution of his thinking and, uh, and, and Brett Taylor as well uh, as co-CEO uh, talking about how important it is to be part of the fabric of the community rather than a provider of something to the community. Wow. Yeah, Wait, no, can no, I no, ask no. you a question before, and I'll stop. In your book, you actually forecast 90% of Fortune 500 disappearing by 2050. Do you agree with John that one of the drivers of these companies merging, bankruptcy, whatever the reasons are that they won't be around in 30 years, is they lose focus on ethics and earning trust with stakeholders? Oh, definitely. Uh, I would say on the trust side, I think mm -hmm. it's a it's a values based question. When you no longer have a mission and purpose that your stakeholders agree with, uh, you will go out of business. Um, and internally, if you don't even know why you exist, you see this happen with most companies. They hit forty years old and they're publicly traded companies. They've hollowed out. We call, we call it the uh, the middling out of, of these companies. They middle age out, and they really nobody knows what's going on, right? They, they don't even know what the purpose of the company is, and they, and they try to reinvent that. They try to rethink that, and uh, you have to rebuild those life cycle of organizations. Uh, but but related to that, I mean, I, I think it's important, right? I mean, we we see this shift right around AI ethics, right? Where it's going to be, where it plays a role in corporate strategy, what happens, and uh, you know, we've got we, we should be. I'm going to ask each one of you guys what what you think the prediction on AI ethics will be for the next three to five years, because. This is well, right, and, and if I can just jump in, if we can make it data and AI ethics, because I think so much we rush to the AI, but if the data ethics aren't present, it doesn't matter what you do on the AI ethics. No, and I that's worry a great that point. that's data something and AI that, ethics. Yeah, yeah. data Let's seems to be boring, and so we don't talk about it. But I think oh no, really no, 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 it's not boring. It powers the AI. So, so, so where do you see data and AI ethics uh, in, in the next three to five years? And then we'll talk about maturity models after that. So go ahead, David. Oh, well, I mean, I would say I'm extremely excited about these ideas of data co-ops or data trust. And this is the idea that you can bring together different people to actually bring their data and actually have a voice in how it's used. Um, and you can think about this, for example, if you were trying to accelerate research into a blood test for 
um, detecting, say, renal cancer or uh, detecting colon cancer or something like that. If folks actually had a voice in how their blood test was brought together, how it was used, it's actually part of it, and they can actually see what's being done. They can actually have the oversight mechanisms, too. And you also make sure that you're not doing any sort of racial or gender discriminations. That's much different than what I see right now, and I'm not going to name any names of specific Silicon Valley companies. It's definitely not Salesforce, but there are some Silicon Valley companies that are behaving a little bit like some autocracies out there as well. And somehow, because they're a US company, we let them off the hook, whereas if they were somehow a overseas foreign autocracy, we'd be going, you're not giving anyone voice as to what's being done with their data. That's troubling. And so given that there's so much influence that tech can have in the world, I think we've got to look at data trust and data co-ops as a way to, one, involve your customers, involve the community, and then two, that actually builds sort of an feedback loop, a virtuous feedback loop, because you'll be hearing from them what's useful, how your products are actually benefiting, and how you can actually scale forward from there. Well, barring any kind of name changes of these companies, we wouldn't know who. Um, let's go to you, Kathy. No, no, no. no. Uh, what, what's, ha what's happening in the world? You can't rebrand you your way out of that. Sorry. Where do you see, where do you see data and AI predictions in the next three to five years? So. Yeah, we are already seeing huge changes, like with the, the death of cookies and companies mm. having to move from third-party data to... Yes. Um, first and zero party data, you've got to have trust. If you want this, all of this information uh, from your, your customers, you have to have their trust that they have, they're going to use your data in a safe and responsible way, that there is a benefit to you. And when we talk about data ethics and protection of of data, we often think about individual harms. We're very aware when something is personalized to us, when it becomes very creepy. And sometimes uh, inferences are made using AI. Uh, they make predictions about not just what you like and what you might want to buy or what you might do, but what your political affiliations are, your sexual orientation, potential criminal convictions, likelihood to repay loans. There's all kinds of predictions and inferences that are made based on the data that gets hoovered up about you from all of these different sites. And so having strong data ethics is uh, not only something that's just important for the, the ethics of a company, but it's being demanded by consumers and increasingly legislation is forcing companies. So you look at the privacy laws in California and um, uh, increasingly other uh, states, uh, and of course, all of the privacy laws, GDPR, the right to be forgotten in the EU, all of these are forcing companies to behave better when self-regulation just isn't going to motivate them. You end up with this race to the bottom that you know some companies are going to do whatever it takes to make as much money as possible until until they're stopped, whether that is a fine that it's just so large and they can't get out of it and it's greater than the cost of doing business, um, or um, they just see a mass evacuation of consumers. Uh, and so really having a strong ethical culture, first and foremost, with how you handle data is critical. And then all of the technologies, including AI, that are fueled by that data hopefully that ethical culture will then apply out to your other applications of how you're using that data that you're collecting.
It's a great point. Cookie apocalypse meets CCP, CCPA, CPRA, and of course, data privacy uh, and home. What, uh, what other regulation that gets thrown at us? Uh, but then again, would our data and personal data be a personal property right in the future? Um, I'll throw this over to John. Where do you see the, uh, the uh, predictions? What's happening in the next three to five years on data, privacy, uh, AI, ethics, uh, and data ethics as well? So. Yeah, you know, I, I fluctuate between having a really optimistic uh, viewpoint and a pessimistic viewpoint, and I'm kind of like right in the middle right now um, on the on the future. And the reason is, I just read my son, a freshman computer science major, wrote a paper on colorblindness, which is about systemic racism and how the government policies, the U.S. government policies, changed from being like overtly singling out people to um, basically removing racist text from uh, laws. But all it did was made it worse. Um, and so I think that if you start looking at AI ethics in that way, um, it may just be the same thing that happens over again without some kind of oversight committee that has some power mm. uh, that uh, has to be set up. And maybe it's part of the one of the branches of government. That's beyond my thinking right now. But... Um, you know, maybe there's got to be something there. But I also think that the future is there's like maybe simply put, there's small AI and there's big AI. And small AI is like recommendations for your products, you know, on, on, a, on a website or uh, which ad works better and predicting which ad will work better in the future. Um, and if we could solve some of that data problems with the small parts first, mm. maybe that will set us up for having foundational knowledge for the bigger parts uh, later. And uh, But I don't think we've taken big enough steps on the small AI part either. And that comes up like in, as an example, Amazon recommending its own batteries over, you know, you know, other companies. Maybe that's not an ethical thing. Maybe that's a capitalist thing that's, that has no, you know, nothing to do with ethics. But maybe it does. We, we don't know. <laughs> so uh, um, those those things are uh, we have to fix first before we start looking at uh, solving world problems, I think. I love that continuous incremental improvement, which speaks to an AI practice maturity model. And Kathy has extensively researched and written about the maturity model. And the ethics AI practice maturity model has four stages. Um, there's the ad hoc informal advocacy builds uh you know groundswell of awareness that's ad hoc then you graduate to to organize and repeatable so now you have a team of diverse experts working together to create awareness then you graduate to manage and sustainable now you build or buy uh, uh bias assessment and mitigation and tooling uh, that's the that's the third stage and the fourth stage is optimized and innovative um, ethical features uh, and uh, uh, resolving ethical debt are a formal process, part of a roadmap and resourced uh, appropriately. So I'm going to go back to predictions. And I don't know the answer to this, but I'm guessing if you look at at random 100 companies that have AI capabilities, vast majority are on level one, level two. They're not in the managed and sustained or optimized and innovative, I'm guessing. So let's go five years from now. Kathy, do you see five years from now? where companies like Salesforce are delivering features and solutions all with machine learning, NLP, computer visioning, all of these capabilities embedded in the platform, are we gonna see our customers graduate aggressively towards stage three and four, five years from now? Or do we have a lot of more, a lot more work left for us to do? 
I, I definitely think that within five years, we're going to see significantly more companies that are in those later maturity stages. Right now, you are correct. Most companies are in stage one, stage two. One of the, one of the bottlenecks that we have is the expertise. And so going back to Brett's talk about um, the, the lack of STEM graduates, the lack of individuals to be able to fill all the tech jobs that we have today. Similarly, I speak to so many of our customers that they want to build a team. They want to build an ethical AI practice in their company. And they're having trouble finding the talent. There just aren't that many people that have this combination of skills. When we think about diversity and the incredible importance it is to have diversity within a company and on teams that are building technology that impacts everyone, uh, one of the things that gives me hope is that we see a lot more women, non-binary, people of color in fields like psychology, which is my background, ethnography, uh, ethics and philosophy, religious studies. Uh, these are all individuals that we need to bring on to tech teams and, and AI development teams uh, to think about how do we create technology that is inclusive and, and safe for, for everyone. Um, but we've got to be able to improve um, not only our hiring pop pipeline of being able to identify and hire these individuals, but also creating that culture that the individuals are welcome, that they are part of the team, that this isn't a check the box exercise. And as soon as uh, they start giving the really hard feedback, start forcing companies to make a decision of do we do the right thing or do we do the really profitable thing? Um, and then they stop listening to that team. At Salesforce, we know that you can do well and do good, but yeah. sometimes you have to think about it in a different way. And so when people talk about regulation stifles innovation, sometimes when it's laissez-faire, no holds bar, you get the cheapest, easiest solutions to problems, not necessarily the best ones. Mm -hmm. And so when we have constraints on us to try and ensure that what we are doing is good for everyone, we end up with better solutions. I love that. No, Dr. Gray, we point. talked about education here and the fact that there's a skills gap in the STEM and certainly areas of these advanced emerging tech like AI, machine learning, deep learning, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, we have Whitney Johnson, who's Thinkers 50, uh, author of Disrupt Yourself, one of the biggest minds in terms of uh, disruptive innovation in individual careers. And she told Ray and I that mentors are great, but sponsors are even more important in terms of uh, sponsors who use their social political capital to help you advance your knowledge and your career and your ability to have impact. And as you advise dozens of startups and all these incredible major government institutions and big companies, you have all these board meetings happening this, this week. Uh, how much do you think companies are embracing where senior leaders are sponsors? They're actually investing their time and energy to help promote, recruit, retain diverse talent to help them shape their culture and what products and solutions they bring to market. Well, first, yeah, I want to uh, give kudos to Whitney Johnson. She is a great uh, positive She's change amazing. agent and glad She's you could reference her. I apologize. I'm going to take your question in a completely different direction, though, because sure. I feel like this needs to be said. I feel like we've, we've danced around the issue and we haven't recognized that partly why we have the systems we have and the societies we have and the challenges we have is because humans at the end of the day are fundamentally flawed. 
we were evolutionary selection pressures uh, selected for us to be a species that's kind of tribal and kind of xenophobic um, and is kind of racist and is kind of sexist. Um, doesn't mean we can't overcome that through education, but it's like we're, we seem to be looking for the techno fix. And when I hear things like techno socialism, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. We've got fundamental things that have to be fixed here in the real world first. And I think it's good to see that we're getting there. We're talking about data here. But then when you take it to the macro level, I mean, like, I really like what John was saying about maybe we should do some of the small things first, but even the small things are tied to the big things. Um, you know, he's talking about using, like, small AI, trying to have better things in terms of delivering ads. But guess what the number one ad for a certain search engine last year, if you were profiled to be Hispanic American, according to some sources, the number one ad if you were profiled to be Hispanic American was an ad for Sputnik vaccine, if you were Hispanic American. I'm pretty sure that's not U.S. companies trying to promote taking Sputnik vaccine. And so we have expanded an attack surface where societies that are open but imperfect can be divided and polarized more. And that's where I think as much as I want to see incremental fixes, I am very concerned. And, and you already heard a little bit when you were talking to Brett that people are frustrated, um, but they're frustrated on all sides. And they're anti-establishment only because they feel like the establishment is taking too long to get to these fixes. And that's where I really think it is going to be incumbent upon businesses to do something big and bold. Yeah. Otherwise, they may find their entire markets are unstabilized, either because A, a country has invaded another country in the next weeks or so, uh, and that has now destabilized your marketplace, or um, 2022 or 2024 place themselves in the United States and we're more polarized than ever. And, and so my meetings with boards right now, what I'm really briefing them on, and I think what you've talked about, all these sponsorships are great, but right now, we are at a pivotal moment that could either be 1914 or 1939 or some hybrid in between. And if companies don't embrace that and figure out something that's bolder, yeah. you may find your marketplace is disrupted. But let me give you an example where technology can be used to address in a small way, which over time becomes a big way. We decided five years ago to make education free, accessible to anyone that had internet access. That was our criteria. You have internet access, you can learn about machine learning, digital marketing, commerce, sales. Fast forward today, this is about four years, we have almost 4 million active learners and IDC believes we'll help 10 million new jobs by 2025 and add $1.56 trillion to GDP. That was just a small act, make education content available for free to anyone who has internet access. It was yep. technology driven by culture and core, val core values, but it's making a big difference. So I'm with you. But I would also give you another counterpoint to that, too. I was just last week, I was with the Undersecretary General and High Representative to the UN, where she's talking about the good news is we've been democratizing 3D printing. The bad news is we've been democratizing 3D printing, where now you can actually have small arms that don't have registration numbers on them. Yeah. Uh, you can print missile parts and WMD parts. And so we need to recognize that technology itself is actually amoral. It's the choices we yes. make that decide whether it's good that's or bad. Right. And what we're in is an technology is how we use right. it. Right. And I think that's where... So education definitely is a part of it, and I'm glad that's happening. But recognize that may also educate people to do less than good things with it as well. And so it's insufficient. And that's where I think we almost need to have the equivalent of moonshots that use AI, but other things as well, to show a better way. Because right now, I would say, where's your narratives of hope in the United States? Where's your narratives of hope in Europe? Um, and, and, and if we don't have those narratives of hope, then don't be surprised if we end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I think that's, that's where I really like to see CEOs come together with those narratives of hope. Oh, it's a great point, right? And 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 in in that midst of not having narratives of hope, um, other organizations and governments are are providing that, and some of them are becoming the armed supplier of choice uh, for authoritarian dictatorships because they're providing all the tools that are needed to to make that happen, and they're using AI to do it, right? So it's uh that's 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 part of that, uh, and that takes us to this really to important topic, which you guys were talking about: ethics are socially 
defined, right? And and, and there versus morals, which are internally defined. Uh, what society perceives as ethical can change over time. Uh, how can we ensure that as societies with different backgrounds and values coming together, the social weaving of activities work towards some way of ever improving data and AI, we hope. So I'll throw that back to uh, you, Kathy, and then go to John and then David. Yeah, we speak in terms of um, uh, our trusted AI principles. Um, the uh, first principle is responsible. And we believe that it is critical to ensure that we are protecting human rights and the data that we are trusted with. And the UN um, uh, Council of Human Rights, they have these guiding principles that the vast majority of, of countries and, and uh, cultures around the world have agreed upon. And so mm -hmm. in, in those cases, when it comes to economic opportunity, privacy, health, safety, all of those things, that's that doesn't change over time. That's not subjective. Those are values. Those are principles uh, that we believe that we must protect and we keep at our our forefront. And other for, it's responsible, accountable, transparent, empowering and inclusive. Those are the trusted okay. AI principles There are five of them. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. Very, very cool. Yeah. John. Uh, John. Yeah, I, well, I, those, I mean, having the values is so important. Um, you know, I think that um, that that does set us up for a better uh, possible future. What I would say is that um, I think a lot of people look at AI as answers and AI ethics as answers when I think it should be a methodology all the time and a process that uh, evolves. Um, I don't think we do that. I think we, we look to a lot of tech companies for the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe it is how to set up an ethics committee and how, you know, what values to put on there instead of a process that has to, you know, have to take place over a period of time. And um, for uh, for David's part, like a, it's a, you know, maybe it's a science fiction question. There's two, <laughs> two things David said that I, I, you know, I just raised my eyebrow at. One of them is, it is technology's amoral until it's sentient. Then, then what is it? Is it still amoral? Um, and the other is uh, is uh, like uh, for education to happen. It almost you're almost suggesting a brave new world scenario where all children are taken away from their parents and educated in kind of some kind of you know indoctrination camps as a way of resetting society. But even then, you have alphas and betas. Uh, so. You know, I, it's a question uh, that I have. That's why I think it's, it's got to be a methodology and I'm, you know, no one is going to ever, ever have the right answer for it as, as long as we have it as a methodology. Can't, can't um, and can I just jump on, because yeah, John just, please. I mean, because John just left some very interesting questions. So I'd say first thing on the sentient part, I actually like to, whenever anyone says AI, I like to just replace it with the word fancy mathematics and see if it still makes sense. Because, you know, there was, I don't know if you saw, like there was a few years back where they tried to put an export <laughs> ban on AI and I'm like, so you're putting an export ban on fancy mathematics. I, I do think it gets to a deeper question, which but is- But Dr. Bray, that fancy mathematics is gonna have my 10 year old son, by the time he gets his license, in a car that's probably autonomous level three, where he just speaks to the smart dashboard. Right, hundred percent. And I'm not fancy mathematics will take him there. Hundred percent. But it's fancy. Math I'm not. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying. Yeah. Do you think you can actually somehow hold within a nation 
the restriction of that fancy mathematics to another nation. That was the silliness of it. I would also say in terms of, I think you saw there, not, it was, it was, there was a company, three letters, uh, a while back that had cognitive computing and they used those terms and then they stepped back from it because really that's not what it's doing. It's looking like it's human in terms of its thought processes, but it's really not human. And, and maybe one day we'll have how, not sure, but I don't think we're anywhere there in that. But I raise that because um, as we look towards the future, it does raise a very interesting question because there are rumors that earlier this year there was a autonomous plus AI. Because that's the other thing is you can have AI that's not autonomous, you can have autonomous that's not AI, but you had both that had drones that may have been used to both identify and possibly assassinate someone. And right now the United States says we're not going to do that. But then you really talk about big AI ethics, there are other nations that are probably going to do that. And is this something similar to nuclear? And then when we go back to look at history, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, there was chemical weapons where all the nations got together and said, we're going to ban chemical weapons. And guess what they ended up doing a year later? All secretly pursuing <laughs> chemical weapons. And so, you know, we need to recognize that maybe in the modern day tech companies. So let me give you some solutions. So I don't want to give you just problems. This would never happen with CRISPR technology either. But keep going. No, 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 no. We wouldn't all of a sudden see like, you know, oh, what, what, how did that happen? 80 year old generals uh, suddenly looking like they're 60. Yeah, that would yeah, never happen. Never happen. But uh, let, me, let me say, so one thing I think we need to have is more track to, so non-governmental collaborative dialogues between data and tech companies and other data and tech companies of other nations. That's not happening, but it needs to happen. And we do that where we have retired four stars talk to other equivalents in other countries, but I would love to see that happen. Second, we need to actually figure out ways of actually having people not just have a say in their data and have an ombuds function, but actually get equity from it. Uh, it's almost like if you're familiar with Amica Insurance, if you buy into Amica Insurance and they have a good year, then you get a dividend at the end because they didn't actually have to pay everything out. What does data equity look like? And I know some companies are probably not looking to do that because that's going to hit their own profits, but when we talk about data co-ops, I think that really is the next step to show the way forward. And then finally, um, you know, the trouble is we need to do a green revolution. There are some that say it costs about $300,000 a job to convert a normal job into a green job, and yet there's 8 billion people, kind of prohibitively expensive. What can we do to actually have infrastructure and R&D investments that pare it down to $3,000 as opposed to 300000 And you might say, well, who's going to pay for it? And again, this is where with Brett, I wouldn't say look to government for a solution. Most cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, while I know you and I sometimes disagree, are horse races and, and have no underlying value. But that said, what if actually you had a cryptocurrency that actually bought partial investment, fractional investment in green infrastructure? And so you got the market to fund rolling out green infrastructure that's, and so I raise that because if we don't do these big, bold bets now, I think we're going to look back and say 2021, 2022 was the year of missed opportunities, and we're in a less big state, better state at that point. So I, I want to see some big bets, and that's what I'm trying to do in these board meetings. That's what I'm trying to find those companies that are hungry enough to do that. Kathy, my last question to you, just following up on John's notion of having a methodology around building a responsible AI development lifecycle, and you and your team for years have been working to develop this methodology that goes from scope to review to test to mitigate and then launch and monitor very in depth, which means that you and your team are absolutely on the whiteboard ideation stage of introducing ethics and responsible use, not just when the product is finished and handed to you. Can you talk about the importance, emphasize the importance of having this development lifecycle and embed this responsible use of software mindset and science and experience at the very beginning of the process? Yeah, absolutely. I, right now we are, uh, we had our roadmap summit earlier this yeah. week where teams uh, across all of our clouds were presenting 
what are they going to do for the next three releases? And in preparation for those presentations, we've been meeting with um, each of those different teams and, and looking for those three releases out, what is coming? And there's one team that I spoke with yesterday and three releases out, there is a feature that they had planned. And immediately I was like, Oh, (laughs) that might know. I see value there. Like with so many things with AI, I see the intention. The intention is good, but we are a platform. We can't see our customer's data. We can't see our customer's model. We can't go in and say, no, you're making a racist loan decision. You can't do that. So we are providing the tools. We are providing the the ability for, for customers to be able to implement AI, but we also have to empower them. So to go back to those trusted AI principles of empowering our customers to know um, when something is not safe. But first and foremost, that has to come from the very beginning of asking not just can we do this, but should we do this? And if there isn't a, um, a way that we can find to be able to implement um, safety mechanisms, then that's probably something that shouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, and I wow. love the fact that you and your team are empowered to to raise your hand and say, whoa, let's let's revisit this. That's that's how we don't drift away from our brand promise, which is awesome. Okay, sorry. Well, you know what? There's massive uh, interest here on the AI ethics topic. You know, we've definitely seen it. I think, uh, David, you and I wrote a paper for MIT about this, talk about transparency, explainability, uh, the need for uh, reversibility. Um, we also extend sometimes looking at the need for these to be trainable and human directed, unless you want Skynet to take over. Uh, lots of stuff to think about when you think about principles for AI, something we'll be talking for some time, hopefully acting and doing something about as well, like you guys are. And I really appreciate your time. We're here with Dr. David A. Bray, principal uh, at JDA Ventures and distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council, Kathy Baxter, principal architect of ethical AI practice at Salesforce, and the one and only John Tashik, senior vice president strategy at Salesforce. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And more importantly, thank you for being here on Disrupt TV. So, thank you so much. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> I know. What's going on? You know? It's such big topics. I mean, honestly, any one of those questions we could have devoted the entire hour to. Um, and I wish we had Brett and our, uh, you know, our-, our We should have brought them together team. in a round yeah, table. Yeah, awesome, I think man. that you and I could have just sat back and watched these futurist big thinkers you know, debate and discuss uh, their points of view. You know, it's, uh, I do believe it's a boardroom topic. I, w- I believe it will become one very quickly. I believe that- This will be up there with sustainability and ESGs. Yeah. We will see that there. I mean, just like you'll see a chief sustainability officers and the rise of those. Yeah. I think there'll be people that will be looking at AI ethics and AI bots will be looking at other AI bots to test to see what's going on. I mean, we'll see all those derivatives, but hey, I was wrong last week. The last show of the year is next week. And yeah, who yeah. do we have? Yeah, episode 261. So next week is episode 261. And what's special about 261 is next week, you and I will we'll finish interviewing 800 guests wow. on Disrupt TV. So we hit a zero milestone. It took us five years to get to 800. But that's not bad. That's not, you know, that, 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 that's a busy year for us. So we look forward to crossing that 800. And we have Daryl Owen, CEO and owner of Freestyle uh, divers and senior sponsors for partnership manager for ASRAC. We have Joel Makoer, chairman and co-founder of Green Biz Group. And we have Simon Mainwaring, founder and CEO of WeFirst, author of Lead with We, the business revolution that will save our future. So we have 
three CEOs and chairmen, chair people <laughs> on, our, on our show. And we're also going to do a 2021 recap because we've interviewed well over 100 people this year, you know, from prime ministers to, you know, CEOs that own $4 billion in Bitcoin to, you know, best-selling authors. I, I see I you've done did, your homework. I've got to do mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to, to <laughs> economists who came on our show to promote their 83rd book. <laughs> which oh uh, Professor Jacques uh, Atali. Uh, so we've had some amazing guests. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about lessons learned in 2021, which continues to be a hard year. I mean, 2020 was obviously exceptionally difficult, but 2021 has also been uh, difficult. And so we continue to be on this journey of uncertainty and separation for now going into two years. And hopefully next year, um, you know, we'll be at a better place. Certainly our guests for next year are going to be extraordinary. And, uh, you're going. You're, you're going to. You're going to. You're going to be treated to some of the biggest and best minds in the world as we continue to engage folks on our show. So, your closing, your closing thoughts on this big topic, and it ended up being dominated by AI. Uh, what are. What are. What's your takeaways of today's show? Yeah, yeah. I mean, real quick. I mean, we really thought about where data plays a role, who owns data, data ownership, and and what that means. Um, you know, when we go back to Richie Atwari, one of our friends, when he was talking about humanity back then. I mean, we have you know property rights. Uh, you know, and and property rights really should be including sort of data. Right. Today, you own land, you get a title. Uh, you have an idea, you get a patent. Uh, your data that's being traded in this economy actually has no rights. Uh, and so, when you actually apply the property rights that exist in today's laws to your personal data, your genomics, your DNA could be a very different economy um, from what Brett was talking about to where we are today. Um, that will transform data, consent, value exchange, and AI ethics will all be conversation points. Uh, and collective use of uh, data, uh, you know, in that conversation between collectivism and individual, how can you use data for good? Um, I don't uh, agree with the CCP China example of Shenzhen being a safe place to drive. It's also very oppressive <laughs> driving that's in place. I think I'd rather have no one looking uh, and have a manual cop uh, enforce. But, you know, that's maybe because I'm very American, right? And that goes back to the cultural aspects. But I think these are going to be topics we'll be discussing for years. And of course, you'll be catching them on Disrupt yeah. T, Disrupt TV. So catch us Brett's every Friday at 11 a.m. Brett's book yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. It is an amazing book. We got yeah. the summaries too as well. And that was awesome. Yeah. But catch us every 11 a.m. Pacific Friday where Disrupt TV is being played. And of course, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, you can catch us on replays on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Music, uh, and of course, uh, you know, on Twitter and of course, uh, LinkedIn Live. And I believe, I think sometimes we're on Facebook Live. We'll find out. So anyways, thanks everyone. Thanks for being here and happy Friday, happy holidays. Thank you, everyone. See you next week.